But so anyways, that's like, I think the next thing that has to happen in the mead world is either a big company is going to make their own or someone's going to get bought and they're going to get access to distribution and, and mead will be in every store in so many markets. And the advertising dollars that'll go with that, with television and print and social media are going to elevate mead beyond any level that we ever could do. Welcome to Making Ends Meet. I'm Tim, the founder of Greedy Bear, Sydney's very first meadery in the making. I've managed to convince my brewing mate Josh to join me for the ride and together we are documenting our journey and chatting with meat experts along the way. In this episode, we speak with Jeff from Superstition Meadery, one of the biggest and fastest growing meaderies in the world. Thanks so much for tuning in and we hope you enjoy this episode. Josh, welcome back to Making Ends Mead. How the hell are you, my friend? I'm great. It um, it sounds like you've got a bit more energy this week, Tim, compared to last week. Look, I kind of have to. Just life is coming at me hard and fast, and if I show any sign of weakness, I'm doomed. So, um, mate, what as, is, as it is in the animal kingdom, <laughs> that's right. So, what's happening in your life? What's the latest? Uh, yeah, so I've, I've got two quick updates for you. So, the first one is I had a mate come over today. Uh, look, he's he's been with me from the start of like my home brewing career. Um, so supportive. I made beer for his wedding. I respect his opinion. He's tasted almost every unfermented beer I've made. Um, yeah, well, well. In every every step of the process. Um, okay. Yeah, his his mates probably think he's a total weirdo with beer because of the stuff he's picked up <laughs> from me over the years. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, he he came around and he absolutely went bananas for the Beauchet. Okay, okay. So, if anyone's listening, uh, Beauchet means basically caramelized honey um, mm. turned into a mead. Um, so, okay, he loved it. That's great news. Loved really news. it. Loved cool, it. Cool, cool. And, yeah. and you've also got some some other exciting news for us, Joshy boy. Yeah, um, I scored us a sponsor. We have a sponsor, ladies and gentlemen. A sponsor. That's yeah. so, so, who's our sponsor, Josh? 41 Pints of Beer in North Rocks. 41 Pints of Beer is a homebrew shop. Um, Tim, do you know what 41 pints of beer is? No, Josh, no idea. Well, the math is, is that there's 41 pints of beer in a keg, and if you drink 41 pints of beer in one sitting, you die. Ah, so, okay, 41 mm. pints of beer in a keg, 41 pints mm. of beer in your mouth, you're dead. I assume so, but hope, hopefully no one like calls in and tells <laughs> us that, that that... Yeah, anyway. <laughs> okay, but okay yeah, so like, 41 pints of beer, <laughs> North Rocks, uh, what do these guys do? How can they help our listeners? They can help any of our listeners that want to get into homebrewing, are homebrewing, are not sure whether they want to homebrew and just go and ask someone about it. They are Mm. just really great. Tom is a great guy. He runs the shop. It is in North Rocks, Loyalty Road. They have everything you need. Absolutely. Um, And these guys deliver if you're in New South Wales, Queensland, Northern Territory, South Australia, ACT and Tasmania. So yeah, get online and check them out. I'm I'm personally stoked about this just because like this is my background, this is where I've come from, and to be able to kind of support that is huge. We're so stoked to partner with a a, a Sydney local business that knows their stuff can help um people get brewing. Amazing. So what have you been up to, Tim? Mate, I've been design, design, design. Just my head has been so stuck in design uh, for Greedy Bear, and we've been. Talking with Clint, our designer, we we just posted something like a couple of days ago on our inner circle group, our Making Ends Meet inner circle, 
And it was our, our kind of, I guess, first draft design or this particular design that we're, we're really liking. And we got everyone's feedback and thoughts on what they thought about the colors, what they thought about the fonts and the, the actual greedy bear icon itself. And man, I was blown away by the engagement, Josh, and just people just, just chipping in. It was just so helpful. The, the support we get from there is incredible. And a shout out to Clint. Like he is, obviously as a creative, he is just so willing to kind of let us do our thing and be comfortable with stuff like that, which is amazing. So, yeah, and look, and if you're listening and you haven't checked out The Inner Circle, definitely check it out. Um, we just we just want to share our journey with you and, you know, let, let you be a part of, you know, building this thing with us. So, we just want it to be, you know, um, a drink for the people. So, we really want the people's mm. input. So, yeah, check it out. Amazing. So, I guess we're kind of getting to the end of the year. So, what have we got coming up? We're going we're gonna to have a little Christmas special, like a bit of a wrap-up, Josh. We're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to have a meet-off. I've challenged you, Josh, to a mead challenge where we're both going to make a Christmas mead, bring it to the table, and our wives are going to join us and be the judges, which is mm. very exciting. And I think this is going to be starting a greedy bear tradition. I really hope so. My idea, I'm not going to lie, is so clickbait-worthy. I just hope I can execute it. Um, I love my idea. I don't know. I've, I've done some research. I couldn't see anyone um, anywhere ever on the internet making this kind of mead. So, Is it vanilla custard mead? Wrong again. Wrong Ooh. again, my friend. Um, it's going... You, yeah, you're not going to see it coming. But anyways... You, um, you, you literally asked me about one ingredient and that was that's my right. idea. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. So, yeah, you'll bring a mead to the table. I'll bring a mead to the table and our wives will taste it and we'll see what happens. I'm so excited. Um, I'm also very nervous. I do feel that my entire reputation and identity and probably emotional well-being is on the line here. So <laughs> This is so true. I have absolutely mm. nothing to lose. I've started brewing at this level like kind of this year. And you've been brewing for a lot longer, so there's a bit of pressure. It'll be good fun. If I lose, it'll be fun. If I win, it'll be fun. That's right. Okay. You're a good sport. I'll, you're you're a good sport, mate. Regardless, so I'll I'll bounce back. That's right. So, mate, that's what's happening in the next episode. What's happening um, in this episode? What's coming up? We are talking to Jeff from Superstition Meadery. Jeff is not just an absolute mead legend. He's absolutely jacked, but that's a totally different subject. But he's uh, huge. Man, these guys are easily probably the most highly awarded meadery in the world. They have the highest rated alternative cider on Untapped, which is a massive rating website where if you get on the top there, you're like the king. They had this massive barrel aging program that I kind of nerded out about. And before we throw into the interview, I'm just going to throw out my favorite quote of The Wire. And it is, if you come at the king, you best not miss. Hope you enjoy. Jeff, my friend, we know exactly who you are. Um, we're personally massive fans, but for the people who are listening, who are you and and what is Superstition Meadery? Cool. So, Superstition Meadery is one of the most awarded meaderies um, really ever, I guess. And along with, um, you know, a handful of our friends in the industry, we're sort of pushing the 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 boundaries of what what really good meat is and can be. Uh, and cider as well for us. And I mean, maybe that's a short answer, but, um, and happy to get into, you know, the story and how we started. But um, yeah, I started this with my wife and I, and we began in 2012. And now we have two restaurants that are also, you know, on their way to 
sort of becoming known for being good at what what those do. Uh, our our tap room in in Prescott, where I'm talking to you from here, our, our headquarters, a small mountain town in Arizona, uh, was named by Rape Beer as one of the top uh, brewer tap rooms in the country last year, which is a huge honor for us. Like we never won any sort of or received any sort of recognition for you know what we do in that in that arena. Uh, on top of you know the mead competitions and things like that. Um, but we've also worked really hard not only to make some of the best meat and cider uh, and, and now serve some of the best food that anyone's had, but to create a really like healthy, awesome place to work for everyone that works for our company. And it's just us figuring this out, kind of doing what makes sense one step at a time. And uh, I think our highest uh, honor that we received in the business world was in 2019. My wife and I were named the uh, Small Business Persons of the Year by the United States Small Business Administration. Wow. Uh, out of 30 million small businesses. So that was insane uh, as an honor and also really helped us to, to get the concept of mead out there to the world in, in, a, in a way that otherwise wouldn't have been able to you know, achieve that sort of attention. And so second only to trying to grow our company and all that goes with that, I think uh, we've really tried to expand awareness of mead uh, as a category, as an industry. And I, I couldn't believe more in that. Uh, my wife and I were founding members of the American Meat Makers Association, which is our very tiny version of sort of the BA. Uh, but in that short time, uh, you know, I helped do this uh, this magazine called American Meat Maker that was online. I I helped write legislation that was introduced to the U.S. Uh, House and Congress called the Meat Act that was largely symbolic, but some aspects of that got put into one bill. Um, so we've been really involved um, in in so many ways. We. Uh, if it wasn't for the whole COVID thing, I guess you could say that about a lot of things, right? Um, we actually were expecting sort of a ruling from the uh, the TTB, which is the Alcohol, Tobacco, Tax, and Trade Bureau that sort of sets all the, the enforcement and rules for, for what we do as an industry and, and wine and beer and spirits as well in the, in, in the States. Uh, we were uh, expecting them to make a ruling on creating meat uh, as its own category much beyond what it is now. So we were able to, you know, through that business award, um, you know, network with some folks and, uh, and, and the top two lawyers for the SBA, like met with us and our political uh, guy with the American Meat Maker Association to, you know, like write a letter basically saying, hey, here's what the meat industry, like in a unified way is, is asking for so that we can, you know, say what we want on a label and, and that sort of thing to, mm. Um, you know, again, just keep pushing the industry forwards and communicate in the way that we wish, uh, you know, on our products and whatnot. So anyways, that's, I'm skipping all around, but that's kind of who superstition is, man. We're a lot of things. We wear a lot of hats. Um, and we're trying to, uh, that's what I'm talking to you guys today. One, I like talking to people, uh, about what I do, but I also love travel. I love culture. And I've also, uh, you know, in in many ways introduced me to, to new markets where it never existed. Um, we uh, distribute to over half of the United States. We just signed up three states recently. I think we're in 33 or 34. We can ship business to consumer to 40 states in DC, and we've exported directly to at least two dozen countries and we're available and more than that. All of that is very small though. It sounds like a big deal, right? Um, but what we're doing is a, as far as like production volumes and all that compared to you know most wineries and, and breweries that I know is, super humble, very small scale, but it all adds up to something. And I've always had this sort of idea that someone's going to be the company, the brand, the, the person, whoever, to introduce this category in some country, it might as well be us. And so 
I, I, I love this. And I can't, I've never been to Australia, so I, I look forward to meeting you guys in person. We would love to have you. We would love to have you. So, wow, that's, that's some pretty hectic credentials. You guys have won so many awards. Um, what's, what's, what's your story? Tell us how it got started with you and your wife. Um, what was those first batches like? And, and just walk us through like, you know, the milestones of going from brewing small scale to having two ginormous restaurants and being a massive influences in the industry. So I uh, spent 20 years in the fire service, a couple years with um, the forest service doing wildland firefighting it was a hot shot for my first job and, and love that. Um, and then throughout that process got to, uh, to know uh, about the, the structure fire world, you know, working for a city. And I wound up uh, getting interested in that and, and realizing that, you know, at the time I was making, uh, you know, $8 and 33 cents an hour without benefits fighting fires, which was a blast and worked with some of the coolest people ever and I got to do some wild stuff. But I, you know, just gotten married and, and was like, all right, what am I going to do for my career? I, I like this fire gig and uh and the city seemed like a good idea and so i started trying out for different departments got hired by phoenix fire and was working on my career there and as i promoted a bit uh, i also went to grad school for emergency management and in that whole process i kept asking that question you know what do i really want you know kind of in the middle or next step in life you know after the fire service and lots of firemen have side jobs and a lot of times it's a uh, you know being a contractor in some way for construction or selling real estate. And I was kind of looking into those things. And, and throughout the, you know, that type, sort of time frame, I, uh, I took a trip to Borneo, actually. And I was, uh, my undergraduate degree was in anthropology, which sort of explains some of the interest in, in naming behind superstition and our product. So I'm just, I've always been really fascinated with, um, you know, history, religion, mythology, cultures, and whatnot. And so I had this idea that we're sort of the last generation on earth that could ever see a you know, rather traditional sort of hunter-gatherer, you know, group of people because everyone's going to have TVs and Netflix soon, right? And so I actually went to Borneo. I wound up meeting um, the last nomadic Panan family in this one region of Borneo and, and spent a week in the village. And you know, I had this whole experience. And, and before going out into the jungle and, and, and meeting some really cool people, um, you would hang out in this sort of like traveler's hostel in, in Miri and uh, you'd go down to this bar down on the street level and, and drink Guinness and talk to travelers and stuff. And um, I got to be friends with this guy named Mark. that was a biologist doing some work over there. And it turned out his parents lived 10 minutes from where I lived in Arizona. And so we stayed, you know, in contact and he showed up for uh, it's kind of like a Christmas time dinner at our house and he brought some homebrew beer. And I always liked craft beer and, you know, was not a beer geek at the time and didn't know how to brew or whatever, but he was, was like, dude, how'd you make this? You know, this is awesome. And you know, he was telling me about it and he was, you know, a real sort of do-it-yourself guy when it came to, you know, all sorts of things in life. And I was like, I think I could do that. And I always like cooking. It sounds like cooking and putting flavors together, right? And figuring out what tastes good. And so I got home from the fire station on Father's Day, I guess six months later, and my wife had a homebrew kit and a shelving unit and a refrigerator that we still have in our garage today covered in brewery stickers now from our friends visiting. And um, I made the kit that, you know, she bought of some stout that I, I know I skipped a step in and I saved one beer from that because it was terrible um, as a reminder of like what not to do. But, you know, I had fun drinking it and stuff, uh, but I made a mead and a Belgian beer. I went and um, I went to the homebrew store and said, hey, I want to make a Chimay clone because I would started getting into beers after my buddy introduced me to the whole homebrew deal. And uh, and yeah, I just started brewing like crazy. And, you know, I'd probably make a beer every two weeks or so and I'd make a mead maybe like once a month. And it's just this 
like that stupid cliche of I was at a Renaissance fair the first time I had me, but it's true because the Renaissance fair in Arizona was like, again, like a few minutes from where we lived. And I didn't, couldn't have told you anything except it's made from honey. And so I got a recipe and I, and I made a, um, actually an acer glint or a maple mead. Uh, my wife's from the Northeast and uh, you know, we always have like real maple syrup in our house. And I thought, well, I can ferment that. That's kind of like honey in a way. Right. And so my first meats tasted better than my first beers. And, uh, and I was hooked. Uh, and I also just sort of started a family not long before then. And so my wife was getting into endurance horse racing and she'd go out and train for, you know, half a day of riding. And I would brew a batch of beer and just hang out with my kids in the front yard. And we lived in this part of Arizona that was ironically known for making meth. And I think all our neighbors would drive by and they just saw me outside with a turkey burner and tubing and bugged. It's like, man, that guy's just making meth with his kids in the front <laughs> yard. He doesn't even care. <laughs> but I was really making, you know, my version of Belgian beers and Hefeweizens and Meads and all that stuff. So that's kind of how I got started into the homebrew gig. Wow. And um, I think every homebrewer dreams of having a brewery, right? And so yep. I'd always been the kind of guy that would prefer to have an imported beer versus a, a Budweiser or something. And, and I knew I had my favorite sort of things that were accessible, right? I think that's like the training wheels for a lot of folks getting into craft beer before you know, it was as available as it is today. And um, I'd always go to Fort Peaks. That's still the biggest brewery in Arizona. But back when they were, you know, very small and independent, even got to know the owner one time. So, you know, we would take our kids there because it's it, if you're not in the in, in the beer scene, like it's, it's probably counterintuitive to think alcohol in any way meshes with families and stuff. Right. But, mm. you know, when you go to a brew pub, they got crayons and root beer and pretzels. And it's actually like super family friendly, as you guys know. And so, I became a craft beer geek and a craft beer tourist. And when I would go home to Maryland where I grew up, we'd always go to Dogfish Head in Delaware and like make a pilgrimage. And that was one of my influences. Like, wow, what's what's up with this whole beer thing? What are the possibilities of flavor combinations? And, stuff? and yeah, I went to see my brother in Colorado and we went and toured, you know, New Belgium's brewery years ago and just started, I was like just into it and into the, everything about it, I guess. And so a couple of years went by and I was still going through that process of trying to figure out what I want to do in life. And the whole time thinking about, you know, what's it like to have a business? And so I started talking to people that owned businesses that we knew, small businesses that unrelated to the craft world and just getting advice and taking notes. And then when we traveled, I, you know, if I had a chance to talk to a, a business owner or, or a brewer, I would, again, you ask questions, take notes. And I just started like a notebook, literally of like all this information. And I started Googling, like, is there a, like a way to learn about how to like have a business like this? And I wound up taking the second class the Siebel Institute ever put on called How to Start a Brewery. So Siebel, along with UC Davis and a few other spots in America now are, are known as some of the best places to learn how to become uh, a professional brewer. And they had this class that um, I, I, I took a chance, charged it on my credit card, went to Chicago and got to see a Bears game, which was cool. Anyways, we're sitting there in the, in, in the class. I remember the first thing in Ray Daniels, so, you know, he made the Cicerone program and all this stuff. He goes, um, hey, raise your hand if you're an award-winning home brewer. And there are 40 people in the class, 39 people raised their hand. I looked around and I go, they have awards for this shit? Like, I, I didn't know anyone that, that, that did this. And so, they, you know, the guy sitting next to me was like, oh, yeah, you got to enter home brew contest because you, know, you get this feedback from judges and you, and you learn about how to make things better and, and, and you'll know if you're making good stuff. And so as soon as I got home, I started Googling, you know, homebrew contests and entering beers, meat, ciders I had sitting around and started getting good scores and winning medals right away. So that was really inspirational. Like, all right, cool. I, I think I'm on to something. I think I kind of know what good is. And 
and, and at Siebel, you learned how to write a business plan for people who just did it to open a brewery and they didn't have anyone that wasn't successful, right? Teaching you. So you learned all the rules and stuff. And, and a lot of what they taught us was really parallel to ironically starting a metery. So I got, you know, got home, started writing a business plan that kind of could have went in either direction. And we made the, the bold decision to do something that it was rarely done. Um, you know, there were already thousands of breweries at the time going back, you know, writing this plan 10, 11 years ago. Mm. Uh, and we decided to sell our house where we lived uh, in the Phoenix area and move to this cool small mountain town of Prescott, raise our kids here and started a business. And so we, uh, within a month of being in Prescott, we went to um, the closest winery, had no connection with them at all, just showed up and we knew they were open and we wound up really hitting it off with the owners. And they were a couple that were kind of getting ready to retire and um, became almost like adopted kids because their kids were kind of grown up and lived in other places. And, you know, I said, hey, I, I've been homebrewing. We tried our mead and they loved it. And like, you should make your mead here. And I said, that's funny you mentioned that because there's this like sort of way you can start a business called an alternating proprietorship. And you can do this in the States. I'm not sure as a distiller, I imagine you can, but as a brewer or a winemaker and mead is all legally wine in America. If you make mead or cider, you're a winery. And an alternating proprietorship is when one separate licensed winery rent space from another. And so in order to do that, you know, it's very complicated as far as the paperwork goes, like anything with the government and the highly regulated industry. And I decided to figure it all out and, and and these folks at this winery that that used to be out on this awesome ranch surrounded by national forest half hour west of here agreed to change their license and let us come in. And my first space, legal space to make alcohol was literally this the this uh, footprint of a barrel rack. It was, it was 18 square feet. Wow. And and I had two barrel racks. I had four barrels. And then we were allowed through this uh, governmental sort of relationship between us to share bottling a bottling line and like some common space and stuff and so my wife and i started this whole venture with ten thousand dollars on one credit card our first year and a lot of research and a lot of work and it was just her and i and our kids like i can't tell like the government is like putting labels on the bottles and stuff you know like <laughs> it was truly a family venture and and still is in a lot of ways wow and we wound up basically selling enough me to kind of pay off that credit card the first year and then we kept growing and i figured out how to do sales and what all the like goes into it. And then we have uh, a, a guy who still works for us today. He's probably been, he was a contract employee, I guess, for the longest time, but he's still like our, our number one sales rep. And, um, and he, he, he approached me and said, Hey, I, I recognize that there's this need in Arizona to provide really small wineries with access to the market. And you guys at making a small amount of product as you are can self-distribute. So I'll be your sales guy. How about it? And here's like, we came up with an agreement and, and, and Jim started getting us into a council over the state. And, 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 and after like a year or two, we became his only account because we were just growing so much. Wow. And so that was 2012 when we started by 2014, we opened up our tasting room in Prescott, which was also our production space at the time. I thought it would have taken three or four years to fill the space because I was still working full time as a firefighter. My wife was still working at the time. And in three to four months, we had 34 barrels in service in our office under the stairs. Um, it, was, it was kind of insane what we pulled off. And in 2016, we made 6,800 gallons of meat and cider in this cellar space in a historic building and realized... Like we can't grow unless we get a new space. Mm -hmm. So we saved up enough money to get a down payment for a loan. 
and and we bought an acre of land in an industrial park. It actually has a beautiful view for like a hundred miles in some directions, which is cool. But we built this state-of-the-art production winery or meadery, right, from scratch, literally drawing our ideas out on bar napkins by traveling around the world, talking to people and getting advice on floor drains and fermenters and glycol systems and everything. And and we put together the, the best idea that we could and then got a second loan the day that we got like the keys for the building. We have flicks. I'm like, yeah, man, we need a bottling line. This thing we're using isn't working anymore. And that was able to get us to grow enough so that we kept, you know, moving product through getting pulled through with our accounts. And, and then we're able to just keep investing in the company. So it's, it's kind of been like pedal to the metal. Um, one day we'll save money sort of thing. Let's just keep investing in our people and our products and our equipment and technology. And now, um, I gosh, the first year we opened that up, we became the biggest winery in the history of Arizona. And uh, last year we did about 39,000 and change gallons of meat and cider. And we've already made more than that in the first six months of this year. So we're going to more than double. And next year, go on beyond that. We're about to break ground on another warehouse across the street from us. We have tanks to the ceiling and two forklifts. And you, my dad came out to visit couple months ago and i was showing them like our barrels and stuff and it's so packed in our facility i actually had to like squeeze through the forklift to get to the door to get to the barrels so we're busting at the seams we need more space um we're working up like super crazy hard and we have just some amazing people that work with us we opened up a restaurant in phoenix in COVID, which is like the definition of mental illness um but the reviews are awesome and we're doing, we're doing pretty well. Um, November 1st will be 12 months of, of having the first mead and food pairing restaurant ever. And every single item on our menu has a recommended uh, mead or cider, usually mead that goes with it because I make more of that. And our staff's trained to talk about, you know, how these flavors work together or contrast in a beautiful way. And, and that's been going really well. So we just keep on keeping on, man. I know that's kind of the story how we got here. That's, that's, that's just incredible. Um, what, what I would like to ask you is basically to take us through kind of a virtual tour of your meadery and maybe just talk about, you know, what a brew day looks like or, you know, what, it look, what it's like to walk through. You know, you talked about barrels. and I'd love to hear more about that as well. Yeah, you got it. Um, I definitely recommend and I can share the link if you guys don't have it, but we have a YouTube channel and we've been putting up videos all year. And I think we may even have like 30 videos up right now. And we talk about barrels. We talk about canning and bottling and making mead and even branding and graphic design and food pairing. And so you can get like an actual tour through all of this sort of thing. Uh, it started with this, uh, these awesome guys from the paragraphic company, their video production crew came up and said, Hey, um, how about we, uh, we got introduced to a mutual friend and they're like, Hey, we have this kind of deal where, you know, we'll come out and film something for you. We'll put a 10 minute video up. That won't cost you anything. We'll get, you know, the YouTube stuff going or whatever. And we're like, yeah, cool. Let's try it out. Totally hit it off with these guys. And now we have this, you know, we meet once a month and we, and we film what will become four to six oh, videos, depending on what the it, topic is. It's so good. I'm not going to lie. I've, I've watched all of them and I've shown them to all my friends. I'm like, look what these guys are doing. We could potentially do this in Australia. It's been so inspirational. So thank you so much. Keep it up. It's so great. It's my pleasure. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, that's like kind of one of the most like the awesome, like just taking the door away, right? Like, here, come see mm. what we do. It's it, the whole motivation is like. And it's sort of in how it's made instructional things slash, but just behind the scenes, look at superstition. And um, every once in a while when we're filming and say, we're having some sort of like sensitive discussion, the guy's like, can we film this? I'm like, no, it's not a reality show. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> but well, let's go back and film how we uh, pull a nail on this thing or whatever. Yeah. Um, 
but but the first video they made, it's got I think it's got over a million views now, and that's like a really cool introduction to what we do. But anyways, happy to take you guys through it. So the first thing that that we do at production is uh, we get on the forklift and move a bunch of stuff outside because there's no room to work inside. <laughs> so so our crew, fortunately, we have pretty awesome weather in Arizona most of the time. So we got to move a bunch of stuff out of the way, and there's always multiple things going on. So right now we've got eight people in production plus we have uh we still hand label almost every single thing that we do and so we've got our labeling crew that, that also are working on fulfilling web store orders on sort of one side of uh, of our building which is also in the barrel room and then we've got you know the production space so we've got this uh six head gai filler from from italy it can fill uh still or carbonated products and it can do Gosh, four or five different formats of bottles. We have two different 750s, a couple different 500s, and some 375s. It can apply uh, a crown cap, just a beard cap, right? Or it can put in a cork, or it can skip the closure. And then what we'll do is, is take this 750 in the case of our flip tops that comes out, and someone will manually apply and position a flip top, put that on the next conveyor. It goes down the single conveyor, and this machine is just a piston that goes chukunk and closes a flip top. So when we expand it in 2017, there are a lot of discussions with my wife and I and our production crew on, hey, are we going to go to just corks or what are we going to do? And I was like, flip tops are such an important part of our brand, but there's a reason why you don't see those in the market. Because I could only find one company in the world that actually makes bottling equipment for flip top bottles, right? And it was in Austria. And so we actually flew a staff member to Austria. I've still never been there. And he spent a week learning how to work on this machine that we had created up and imported back to the States. And the problem with flip tops really is that after about four cases, your thumbs want to fall off from closing them, right? And this machine does it perfectly. And we, we were able to, to take our, our concept of, of sticking with 750 flip tops and what would normally take four people a week, we could do in, in a day with, with this machine, right? So... Anyways, that's kind of our, our bottling line. So it depends on what we're bottling. We don't have a canning line right now, but we outsource with a mobile canner and, and they do a great job. We've tested like the dissolved oxygen and it's, it's killer, but like, I mean, the quality is just fantastic. Um, our can, I'm excited about our cans because especially the labels and I mean, not only what, what's in there is good, but like the artwork is so fun yeah, and you get beautiful. that whole can with the shrink wrap sleeve that we're doing. Mm. Uh, one day I'm sure we'll have our own canning line, but again, being out of space, kind of need a new building first. So probably some point next year, I think that, you know, we could move into that. So when we have a canning day, that's a big deal because kind of everything has to stop because it's a big professional canning line that comes in on a truck and we've got to move everything out of the way again. We've got to clear out more stuff. We've got to get all the tubing and the, air all everything's set up to go and so we we're canning um at least twice a month sometimes more and so that's kind of like a, a canning day and our staff actually works with the, the canning company set up clean up you know loading all the cases and stuff and then we've kind of got i'm just like visually going from like you know north to south in our building then we have all of our fermentation tanks so we have what's called white wine fermentation tanks and that just means that Typically, when you make white wine, you're not fermenting on the skins, and so you don't really need the same sort of access, and so there's a little less steel and stuff that goes into making those tanks. So you have an access door, and obviously there's drains, you can clean them and everything and sanitize them. But then we have red wine fermentation tanks where you've got this kind of big door, um, you know, maybe like 20 inches or so. You could crawl in it if you wanted to, and it's at the level, the bottom of the slope of the tank, so you can get in there and get whole fruit out. And we do whole fruit fermentations for wine, for mead, sometimes for cider as well. 
and then we have our our bright tanks. We've got unit tanks which can function. We basically we just use them as bright tanks. So if you if you don't know and you're listening, um, those are generally twice as expensive as the same size sort of wine tank. Everything having glycol to be chilled is needed, but you need to you need to pressurize those bright tanks or unit tanks. So when we're doing a cider and you have to add your bubbles, just like most beer, um, you need to have like double the steel, so it costs twice as much. We've got two glycol chillers outside, and so they're going to be sending in that that liquid through the glycol lines, keeping our temperatures where they need to be. Then we've got a very humble lab and lab bench where you know we can test the sulfites, and we've got hydrometers, just like as a home brewer and anything that exceeds our laboratory. Uh, analysis capabilities we send out to a professional lab to get tested and we do that with every batch like we want to know the exact abv for record keeping make sure that like we can pretty good at predicting what it's going to be at this point but especially for new things or for barrel aging you know you can you can have the abv increase for sure when you're aging in spirits barrels and whatnot so so we just outsource that some things are beyond our capability but we also are actively designing a, our wish list lab because when our new warehouse is built we're going to take the the office that's inside of our production facility and it's going to be plumbed like a, a pro lab and benches and everything. So we'll be able to do a lot more in-house as, as we grow that. Um, I don't know. That's a, we, we've got test batches going all the time. We've always got, uh, we have three different pumps that are all the same capability. So we can be doing multiple evolutions of things. We can be sending liquid over to the bottling line or the canning line or the cake filling machine, right? Or we can be transferring liquid between tanks. We can be moving through a filter, um, Whatever it is we have to do, we've always got, I mean, multiple tanks going. Sometimes we'll, we'll have a hop back set up and we've got hops or coffee beans or vanilla beans or cacao nibs. And we're just circulating product through that nice and slow and low over a couple of days. And you really need multiple pumps to be able to do that and be efficient. And then we've got our barrel room and the barrel room. I mean, that's, I mean, the, the stainless steel side of the building is kind of like the science side and the barrel room is kind of like the art side. And there's still like, I, I remember back in the day too, but, but even today, sometimes someone that's new that works for us will be like, hey, when's this thing going to be ready? And they think I'm sarcastic. I'm like, it's ready when it's ready. I don't know. Like it's in a barrel. We got to figure this out. And if it's something we've done before, we got a pretty good idea about it, especially if the barrel came real fresh. But there's a lot of times we're doing new things all the time. I mean, we've used rum barrels, tequila barrels, Madeira barrels, port. I mean, I'm almost, you name it, gin, like mezcal like you name it we, we've used it in some way but whenever you get into a new thing or you've got a new uh, a new vendor or a new place the barrels come from whatever new toast level of wood or wood from a new source from hungary or or france and it was done in some different way like you just don't know what you're going to get until you try it out and even some barrels are different i remember we were making a blueberry white one year and that's part of our our white series of like white chocolate and fruit and vanilla and, and everything's Asian, new American oak. We had four brand new American oak barrels, all the same toast level, all from the same place. And one of those four barrels just tasted like nutmeg, like crazy nutmeg spice was coming out of the wood. And it was really good, but it wasn't the same product. Like if I served that bottle of that, I couldn't have told you this is the exact same thing. Like you're crazy. You clearly added spice to this. But when we blended it in with the other barrels, all of a sudden it was this beautiful undertone of nutmeg that was appropriate and didn't take it so far out of the, the you know, sort of style that everyone was ready or to expect. So um, anyways, that's barrels are super fun. And you know, then there's blending barrels and stuff. I don't know. I can get, go on forever. And then the other side of our warehouse is a, a group of shelves. We've actually, uh, because of the, um, the alcohol laws in producing alcohol in our state, we've had to create nine new wineries. So last year, during all the craziness of COVID, I was like, wow, we're allowed to make 40,000 gallons with our license. And we actually, in order to make 
more cider mead wine whatever we want to do uh and keep our tasting rooms restaurants just the way the rules are and and, and i don't know if you guys know this but in america every state is like its own country with alcohol laws it's bizarre and way more complicated than it needs to be if you're in my position i think but anyways that's kind of how it works and and so I, I created nine new businesses to get nine new wineries at the federal level and nine new wineries at the state level. So now we have 10 wineries and we can make 400,000 gallons a year if we want to. And I also found out there was legislation pending at our state level to limit that to six, no matter who you are, even though no one's ever done that. And I'm like, being who we are and doing things for the first time and working within the rules, but thinking outside the box, let's go for 10. So we got it. And, um, you know, you're going to start to see already there's the Superstition Session Meadery doing our cans and the Blueberry Spaceship Box Cider Company making BSB our, our most famous cider. So gotcha. that's kind of our walk through our virtual walk through our warehouse, I guess. Oh, that that was just great. Um, I really like the stuff around like the, the, the lab and the barrels and it just sounds it sounds almost magical in, in so many ways. Um, so. Speaking of the magic, let's talk a bit about that, which is, you know, fermentation and flavors. And I just want to hear any direction you take, just your approach to, to creating this product. Cool. Well, I'm going to start by saying that my approach to, to making like awesome mead and cider has always been never to dismiss uh, a process or an ingredient and to try everything and to see what works to make the very best product. So we use fruit in all different preparations. We use honey almost exclusively from Arizona. Well, it's, yeah, it's all Arizona in our bottles, but our cans, we use international honey. We had to figure out how do we get the price point at a marketable competitive rate. And so we do use international honey. It's fantastic, but you know, we, we love the Arizona terroir connection in, 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 our, in our bottle products. Um, but anyways, so we're not gonna, like, we're gonna chop up vanilla beans. We're gonna blend vanilla beans. We're gonna stick them in a barrel. We're gonna put them in a hot bag. Like try, I'm, I would I would encourage anyone listening that's, that's you know, home brewing or thinking about going commercial, just don't like close your eyes and ears and judge a, a, an ingredient or a process until you've tried it, right? I think that that's important. There's a lot of perspectives on that in the world. And um, I've always sort of embraced everything. We've got a wine press, a crusher, a stemmer, but I've also frozen fruit liquid nitrogen in Part to make ice cream out of beer on the side for fun, but also because you know you're breaking down the cell walls of the fruit by freezing it, it just happens to be instantly, and you're making these in our case like peach ice cubes and ruining a tamale pot and using a mash paddle to like smash it up, you know, and then putting that into a mead to you know see what happens with the flavor and maybe sanitizing it a bit by freezing it, you know, at that temperature. So I think that that that's always kind of been our approach. And when it comes to meat, I mean, there's so many ways whether you're gonna you know, start off really sweet or back sweetened to hit your goal, like go and experiment with all the different ways. We've used different yeast. We use different yeast now than when we started. We kind of have a house yeast. We banked some yeast at White Labs. We've used ale yeast. We've used ale yeast and wine yeast together. We've brought in yeast from friends doing collabs. I've taken my house yeast and different things over to breweries to do collabs. And I think it's really cool to just keep exchanging ideas. And one of the things you learn when you collaborate is about other equipment and processes. You know, I went and made a beer with my buddy, Derek. He works at Moxa right now. He's known as one of the best stout brewers in the world. And when he was working at Abnormal in San Diego, I was hanging out. We're making this cool stout. I'm like, what's that thing? It looks like R2-D2. And he's like, oh yeah, that's my hop back. You know, I'm running some cacao nibs through there right now. 
And I was like, you can put chocolate in beer with the, this thing. And I didn't even know what it was. I feel like an idiot now saying it, right? But at the time, that was a totally new piece of equipment to me. And getting a better product in two days than you can get in two months. And, you know, I, I think everything goes back to fundamentals, really, too. I mean, we have this big, I have banners hanging in our, in our production facility. And some of them are the awards banners over the years that we've gotten. Um, but one of them is right over sort of like, you know, the, the staff area, right? In our fridges where we, you know, keep some needs and, and make coffee in the morning or whatever. And, you know, it talks about our priorities. And it's number one, everybody's safety. And, and then cleanliness and sanitation. And then making the best meat in the world. And so you got to, like, remember... You can't ever forget those fundamentals. There's so many steps, you know, like if you, you know, you drop your hose on the ground and don't bother to, you know, clean and sanitize it again or whatever, like, I mean, or any equipment. I mean, you guys know this from, from home brewing. I think that, that home brewers can make really exceptional uh, commercial mead makers or brewers for that matter, because you, you have these fundamentals and like you're, you're taught to fear even water. You know what I mean? Or paper towels. Like <laughs> my spoon touched the paper towel. Do I need to, I don't know, paper towels. Are you going to put that into your it's clean category or not? Yeah, and so yeah. that's healthy though, right? Because when you come into making things commercially, you realize pretty quick that the implications of like not doing the right thing are really expensive. And then you just wasted everybody's time. And maybe you've got a sales team that's preparing for, you know, a release and you're like, uh-oh. So everyone is truly uh, just as important as the next person. And when I go into our production facility, I, I try and make an attempt to walk and, and talk to our, our labeling team uh, before anybody else. And I say, hey guys, how's it going? What are you working on today? And, you know, you could, you could, you know, probably imagine that in certain like businesses, some people are considered to have different status or whatever. And I want to make it known that when someone's in Australia and one day we'll have superstition there and they walk down a shelf in a liquor store and they see a label. If it's on crooked, then if we don't care enough to do that right, or if it, the graphic design sucks, then like if we don't care enough to make our label look right and put it on right, why should you have any confidence in buying this expensive thing you don't know about? And so our labelers are in many ways the most important people at our company because that's the first thing a new customer is going to see in some other state or country. you know. And so I think sticking to your fundamentals and realizing like different considerations and perspectives as you go through what's really important is something I constantly do and analyze and apply to business and mead making. Awesome. I'm going to go a bit off track here. Tim doesn't know I'm going to do this, but I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to do like a, I'm going to try something new. We haven't done this in the podcast before. I want to do like a little lightning round with you. All right, go for it. So can I um, say pass? <laughs> <laughs> Next question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you, you can, politician your way out of it it's gonna be yeah it's, it's gonna be real softball kind of stuff so okay so favorite honey arizona mesquite and most interesting ingredient mugwort what is mugwort mugwort is it it, it grows in your it's probably in australia or some version of it it's this old medicinal herb from folklore and, and medieval times and beyond back you know beyond recorded history i'm sure and so it's this like woody plant and it looks like mulch, like you'd put in your flower bed. And the, we did a, a collaboration. First time two meteries in the world collaborated was Superstition and Mabby Nogian from Wales. And so I got to be friends with 
with Tom Newman that started Mad Noggin. He came to visit us in Prescott, and we were talking about what he could bring. And he's like, hey, I can bring a, a Whitbread Ale yeast, uh, you know, it's like UK well sort of-ish thing. And, and he said, but how about, how about some Welsh mugwort? And I'm like, all right, what, what is that? You know, and I Googled it and I was like, oh, that's from like, you know, King Arthur and Morgana and all this stuff. And I'm like, all right, that sounds cool. Let, let's try it. And so it, all I could kind of envision never having tried it was it's going to have like a certain uh, earthiness and minerality and it kind of did and so we took organic Arizona apple cider and Arizona honey and we fermented it with this Welsh mugwort and we made this sizer uh, that's just fantastic and um, we've done it a couple of times we caught it amnesia because mugwort is in the Artemisia family of plants which also contains thujone which is the legendary psychoactive property in absinthe from like wormwood and whatnot and so because we were using this crazy thing that could have thujone, I had to send a sample, 1750, to the national laboratory to get tested, which was actually free, which is amazing, because, you know, we pay taxes later, I guess. But anyways, they tested this bottle, and, and in America, you were not allowed to have absinthe with any thujone in it until this guy that owned a bar in Louisiana, New Orleans, was like, I want to sell absinthe. And so we challenged the TTD, and they reviewed the Code of Federal Regulations, and they decided... Well, if something has below 10 parts per million thujone, then it can be an absinthe you sell in America. And there are absinthe examples in Europe still that are like 30, 35 million parts per million thujone. And, you know, they say it makes you go crazy. I think Van Gogh and those guys were like so high on opium and so drunk that, you know, cutting your ear off from lead poisoning. I, I don't really think it was the wormwood. But anyways, <laughs> you know, that's kind of the, the legend to see in the Green Fairy. So I'm like, well, that's kind of cool. Um, I send it off to get tested. And they send me back the results and it says thujone free. And I'm like, oh, well, that's good. We can make it. But I called them and I said, hey, how much thujone was in it? And they said, it's thujone free. And so they wouldn't tell me the parts per million. So obviously you can't say that on the label anywhere. Yeah, sure. But I was like, it had to have something in it, right? Yeah. And so, um, so we called it amnesia. And then we made this label with like a blend of like the Arizona and the Welsh flag. And it was, it was kind of fun. So yeah, that's probably the weirdest thing that we've done. Two more. So first one is... And we'll, we'll go negative, then we'll go positive. So, brewing disaster story. We just had one. I can't talk about it. It's too fresh. It hurts. Um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> we've had some stuck fermentations. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, um, most a little bit funny, um, that led to having to dump a batch is we had, um, so that part's not funny, but we had a um, our glycol chiller uh, stop working in, in, as it needed to. And we had this part we had to replace. This is a couple weeks ago. And it required someone to understand how the glycol system worked for sure, right? So it couldn't just be anybody. You had to kind of know about stuff um, and keep pushing this button, sometimes every like 30 seconds and all, all night until we could get the part four days later. And so, you know, I thought, hey, I'm going to take my turn, right? And so, you know, we had our staff stepping up for sure. And so I took my kid, he's 15, and I, we go out there and and I got to teach him all about glycol and everything. Yeah, you know, he knew about, you know, a lot of stuff. I'm like, we went through the whole process, how it works. And we each took turns setting our iPhone timer to wake up every hour to go check on the system. And we were able to keep the temperature where it needed to be. And sometimes what we had to do was shut off the pump that, that, that pushed and received the glycol from the tank in order to let the reservoir itself get cold enough, right? So when that hit like 30 degrees, we turned the pump back on, start sending it, bring it back. You see your temperature go up really quick and you had to like mist the, you know, the coils while, and then turn the compressor back on. And so that was kind of crazy. So 
we do have two chillers, but they're separate. They're, they're in two systems. And so what we're going to do in the near future is have our, our glycol contractor come out and replumb it in a way that we can use either as a backup in an emergency. So each one's rated to do a certain amount of tanks, basically. And but, you know, if you really have to, you could say, hey, this firm's almost done or whatever. Let's just shut those off or these are cool. But we need to send it over here to save these products and we'll be able to go turn a couple of valves and, and keep things moving in the right way. So that was um, that, that was probably the craziest thing that's happened recently that, uh, you know, calls. I mean, and, and we're doing processes at, the, at, at a size like we just made 1700 gallons of mead in one fermentation tank. Not many people, if ever, have done that, right? Especially at the ABVs that we're at. Um, we've got tanks twice that size. We're doing cider and soon session meads in. But I mean, the the amount of honey and and the raw materials and the juice and everything that goes into that is so crazy expensive. Like the stress is always high, right? And so you got to like figure, okay, how do we, you know, fix this in the future moving forwards with maintenance logs and everything? And you know, and, but there's always some things that are just beyond your control. And when you're trying to figure out how to make meat at these levels and how to use, you know, your filter appropriately, like, is your filter big enough? Do you need different media? Like we're having to ask ourselves these questions constantly as we scale up. I don't think we'll scale up to bigger tanks than we have now, but I think, you know, we'll keep adding them. So I'm hoping that our learning curve in this adventure of growing our meadery, hopefully we've, we're going to master that by the end of the year. And as we grow, we can keep doing the same sort of size tanks in another building one day or whatever and get into, I want to have a fooder force and have all these cool goals. But um, I think that that we're going to be there soon. And, and maybe we, if we do get bigger tanks, we can just extrapolate what we're learning now. But um, anyone that's going through this knows that no one's ever written a book on how to have a meadery. No one's ever written a book on how to commercially make meat. There's some cool books out there on home brewing for sure. We've all got them. Um, my friend Chrissy wrote a book on uh, the art of mead and food pairing. It's so good. It tells you all about it, not just like foods, but like the history of mead and styles. And, and so there's some cool information out there for sure. But when it comes to actually what we're doing and, and a few other folks that are also growing pretty fast in this, in this mead industry, we're figuring it out every day and just taking insane risks uh, financially and then with time and everything to do all of this stuff. And so I don't know. I, I never, I always want to put my best foot forwards and make it seem like there's no man behind the curtain and it's all magical and happy. But honestly, it's a lot of trial and error, a lot of work. There's a lot of parallels to homebrewing and stuff and trying to figure this out. And, you know, I hope one day that, you know, I like writing. I'd love to, you know, when there's 10 days in the week or things change in a couple of years, who knows, to like write a book on, you know, how we got to this point and what we did and, and tell these stories in details and, and throw out some of these processes that we were figuring out. I'm reluctant to write it now because we're still figuring it out. And maybe we still will be down the road. But I think in a couple of years, we'll be at a point where we've really like, you know, there's that term brewmaster. Like I've never said I'm a mead master, anyone, like we're all still figuring, no one has mastered this yet. We figured a few things out, but we're still learning every day and sharing information and all that stuff. So. Cool. Last one. Um, obviously biggest brewing success. I, I, I guess it's really our barrel program. You know, that's the most exciting thing to me. I think that's what I'm most proud of. Um, I, I don't know if anyone's ever had, you know, 200 barrels of mead in service you know maybe one or two folks at some i don't know but um i'm super proud of it and the diversity of that program and how many just cool flavors come out of there that no one in the world has ever had before 
And that's what makes me really excited about what we do is that we're, I mean, as a business, you have to develop um, a following. You have to do social media and sales and human research and so many things that are just part of any business that you do to be successful. Um, but I think what makes us so unique is that we're coming out with brand new things no one's ever done. And that's what inspired me by, you know, Dogfish Head and the craft breweries that first, you know, got me excited about craft beer. And we're not alone in this. I'm not taking all the credit by any means, right? But I just don't want to like seem that way, you know, because so many people I respect in this industry are doing also things I've never had before. They've never had before. But I know that we do it so much so and apply so much energy to that. And, and that, I think that's really fun. And, and I say this, and I, and I mean it, that anyone that works for us that has an idea for a mead, we're probably going to make it. We're probably going to try it, even if it's in a small batch. And so we, we foster creativity and innovation. Not, not just, it's not just my ideas. I mean, honestly, more than half of the ideas coming out in the last couple of years are from our production crew. And our people are just amazing. And their palates are so dialed in to what tastes good and how to do things. And we're constantly working through, you know, finding solutions to these like big questions and big problems like we were kind of talking about before. Um, and I, I think that, uh, that that's, that's what I'm most proud of. And I think our, our biggest success and, and many, in many ways as a business, it's also your biggest challenge, but our biggest success is, is people that work for us. We've got 68 staff now um, between our, our retail locations and production. And um, we have people that are so committed to, to superstition and our brand and our company and our, our everything that we do and that are again taking things to, to new levels not just with making products but how we run this business and I think that's that's my style I mean I mean sometimes there's like a category of hey I'm gonna say something it's not discussion time and then there's discussion time and then it's do whatever you want and there's kind of everything in between there because we've all got these different skill sets and ideas that we bring to the table to make this just a better place and we're constantly improving what we do. And we don't ever take no for an answer. If I took no for an answer, every time the government said, you can't have a winery or you can't do this. No, no, we're going to figure it out. There's a way someone's doing this, right? Um, I mean, there's sometimes, sure, there's things you can't say on a label because of a law or, you know, we can't have grains in our, I mean, there's some things obviously, you know, that you just can't do. But even if I wanted to make a braggot in, in our meadery, I could get a brewery license. You know, I could have an alternating premises agreement, which is different than that first type of arrangement I described and actually make beer and made in the same place and even use the same bottling line. So there really are ways around so many challenges that are thrown at you. And I think that that's something I would, I would, if anyone's listening and thinking about going commercial, just don't take no for an answer. You know, um, you can't accept that. You have to keep finding solutions and pushing yourself forwards. And if you don't have the answers and your staff from their experience and skill set doesn't have the answers, outsource it because someone's probably going to give you some insight, some help. And, and that's what collaboration and networking is all about. And so I don't know. I hope that makes sense, but that's kind of what I, but I like a lot when I'm most proud of. Awesome. So good. So you guys are producing so much mead, which, which is, I guess saying that the, the American people, they're lapping this stuff up. They're drinking it. We're trying to figure out where are we in Australia on the timeline because though we may be in the future in terms of time, it's Saturday here, it's Friday there. We are in the past in terms of mead making. We have a lot to catch up on. So when I started Superstition just over nine years ago, there were about 150 people making mead at the time from what we could figure out and like when we started our organization. 
And now there's, you know, five to 600 people making mead, but there's 8,500 breweries. And I think like 11,000 or so wineries, we are tiny. Our market share is virtually nothing. It's, it's this drop in a fermentation tank, man. So you can tell that I'm passionate about what we do. I couldn't be more so, but, and we're one of the largest producers in the world and we are tiny, man. We are, we're so tiny. I don't know how to, how to say it. And, but we're growing really, really fast. I think mead is, even though it's really small, it's one of the fastest growing sectors of the alcohol market. Um, but you look at something like uh, hard seltzers, right? A couple of years ago, no one knew what it was. And now it's one of the most exciting things for, for big alcohol. You know, Budweiser, Corona, you name it, they've got it. Sam Adams has truly, I mean, there's White Claws and so many different companies in this, you know, I think 4 billion plus valued a year business now up from one like two years ago and soon it's going to be over six. And so there are things like that that are truly growing crazy fast. Um, but meat's growing pretty quick. And the challenge is that, like I told you, I started with one credit card. I, I don't think anyone's ever come in with a million dollars and said, we're going to start a meter. We are, the, the industry is growing fast. It's growing wide, but it's flat, meaning that no one has ever really penetrated the industry of craft beverages even as a whole, much less the rest of alcohol with the meat. However, there are indicators. Budweiser, a couple of years ago, started advertising this whole Bud Knight campaign in America where they had, did you guys ever see the Bud Knight yes, at all in yes. Australia? And yeah, so they started making fun of mead and stuff, right? And, and, and they mentioned mead a couple of times. Um, they even introduced a very low ABV mead in, I think, Ohio, and they tested it out a year or two ago. Heineken is about to launch a 6.9% session mead. And, and, and they're going to test it in the markets in Denver and Nashville, Tennessee. So those are indicators that the big guys know what the word is. And in some cases are even testing the market. Now, there are, there are people I know in the meat industry that they feel really threatened by that. And they think it's terrible because the, we, we know these things aren't going to taste good, right? They're going to be basically diet drinks. I mean, the, the Heineken mead that's going to come out is two grams of sugar. I drink a diet energy drink with a gram of sugar, and it's diet, right? I mean, let's be honest. There are hard seltzers, and I know people like them, and they do have less calories and all that, and you drink them for a reason, right? I can drink a bunch of these, and I'm probably not going to put on the same amount of weight as drinking a bunch of Belgian dark strong ales. I get it. Um, there are times when you want to have a diet ginger ale and vodka, right? And then there's times when you want to actually have a meat that tastes delicious. I'm not threatened by it at all because I think while they will confuse in the mind of some customers, this is the concern, right? That this is a meat. And, and we know when you read a press release, it's made with sugar and honey and flavored with orange blossom in the case of Heineken. That's not a mead that meaderies are making. That's a mead that a massive brewery is making under a winery license somewhere they're contracting, I, I bet. And we know it's not going to taste great. And there are going to be people that drink it and compare it to a hard seltzer and probably think, well, it tastes a little better than that. Maybe I'll, I'll drink it. And they're going to think that's what mead is. So that's bad if you think that that's all that it's going to go, right? But that's not threatening mead drinkers, right? The people that know what mead is already or that know what an imperial stout aged in a bourbon barrel is they know the difference already and the great thing is when a company that's worth 
you know, billions of dollars is spending however many millions in advertising just this word, me, 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 me. People are going to go into a store in Denver and they're going to try this. I don't know what it's going to cost, you know, a, a dollar or two a can maybe. And they're going to go, eh, it's okay. But you know what? There's the superstition me next to it. That's $6 a can. It's got a little more alcohol. The art's a hell of a lot better on the can. I wonder what that tastes like. And then they're going to drink it and go, oh my God, this actually has flavor and it's amazing, you know? And maybe there's a reason why it costs two or three times as much. And then when they do a little research and they go to our YouTube channel, like, oh, wait a second. They see guys pouring honey and pumping honey and juice and all this. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's not a, like a bag of table sugar going into a fermenter, you know, with some artificial orange blossom, you know? I mean, so I think that it's a good thing that that's happening. And I think that it's an indicator of where the market's going. Because the more that happens, the more people are going to get used to mead and the more it's just, it's awesome for the industry. So that's happening here. I think there's a good parallel to the craft beer scene in Europe, right? Think about the craft beer scene in America in like the eighties, right? It was, you know, a couple of people, you had Sierra Nevada and some you know, home brewers going big, great business people, figuring out how to do things that they had their new Belgiums and dogfish. Had. I mean, I'm, I'm missing, you know, there's hundreds of other awesome places we could talk about. And then it kind of blew up, right? And then the innovation kind of blew up too. And, you know, we have a, um, a brewery in town here that they've won more awards than any Arizona uh, brewery, I think still to date. And, and they, the beers they make are perfect to the style, but they're not necessarily doing, they're not doing milkshake IPAs, right? And they're not doing the crazy trend stuff. They don't have to. They've got an awesome following. They make great beer. But, you know, people realized, hey, we got to keep pushing the envelope, right? And, and they took the scene to this crazy level and it's continuing to, to expand. And then Europe picked up on it. I think after America at some point, and now you've got so many awesome folks, McKellar and Omni Polo, and I mean, how many friends, Siren, we've collabed with all over Europe that are doing incredible crazy beers, but, you know, often inspired by America, even though Belgian beers, that's what I'm drinking right now, are perfect, right? But when you're talking about craft beer, like what's crazy I learned in Belgium is that you'll drink these beers that to us are so exotic in America. And it's just like, yeah, that's, that's my beer, you know, like, it's not like, to me, this is like, so like amazing, you know, but they're like, yeah, I can go get that at the, at the convenience store in Brussels, like illegally sold in the alley or whatever. So anyways, I think that What's happening in Europe, even with meat, has begun, just like as a parallel years later of what happened with craft beer in Europe. I mean, you can go to any country in Europe and get some really cool craft beer. Now. And anywhere that has a meatery in Europe, they're also going to have someone that's probably putting vanilla and chocolate and barrel and doing really cool stuff. And so I think of like Sati Paya in Sweden and Marlo Bobo's Mega Beer, one of the funnest uh, there, one of the funnest names to say our friends in Norway and Mjolderia. Those guys are doing crazy, outlandish, awesome meats that are delicious with crazy flavors. So that's happening there. And I think that it's because of the interest in craft beer. And when I started writing a business plan and even started my business in a winery, I always thought, well, yeah, winemakers are, or not winemakers, sorry, wine drinkers are going to like love meat. I mean, we're a winery after all, we're selling it here. And not that there aren't wine drinkers that love mead, but honestly, our fans are craft beer fans. And it's because of the innovation and the flavors. And when you come into our, our tasting room, and this, this may be cool advice and, and also illustrative of where the industry is going, when, it, when someone comes in and uh, they're like, hey, I've never had mead before. You go, okay, cool. What do you like to drink? You like bourbon? 
oh yeah, oh cool. We've got this bourbon barrel aged meat. It's dry. It's boozy. You're going to love it. You're going to smell the bourbon, taste the bourbon, but it's not going to burn because it's not the same ABV, but it, you're going to love it. And then someone's like, why well, drink IPAs? Well, cool. We don't make IPAs. But we've got a couple different meats, citrus and hops in them, and you're going to love it. We kind of make it like it. If you know what dry hopping is, cool. We do that in our hop back, but we do it with honey. And you know what? Honey goes with anything. Name something honey doesn't go with. Like mustard doesn't go with anything, but honey mustard is a freaking sauce we all eat. I mean, honey literally goes with anything. So we can pair honey with anything, any fruit, any herb, any spice. It's going to be delicious if you make it right. And so I think that people are getting their, their minds open as craft beer drinkers, for sure. And they're trying things like, you know, interesting ciders and meats. And it is growing, but it's never growing as fast as we want. So I think there's going to be some indicators that push me to the next level. No meadery has ever sold to a big company, right? Like there's so many examples in the spirits world, the wine world, the beer world. One day that will, it may not happen. One day it will. If it does, that business is going to have access to the distribution network of that big company. And if it's an alcohol company, it's going to go like that overnight. And so we're at this sort of precipice, I think, in the meat world where a couple producers, and we're in this group, we're getting, we're approaching a point where maybe in a few years, we'll be big enough to be on the radar of like an acquisition like that. I think it's a screaming deal now if someone was interested with the right brand, honestly, and take it to the next level. And I'm not saying that because I ever want to sell necessarily. You can never say that out loud anyways, right? But really as an indicator in the market, one day, some meadery, or maybe it's not a meadery, maybe it's Heineken. Maybe it's Budweiser making their own version of it. It's going to turn mead into a household name. It's going to happen at some point. I believe that. And I don't know how it's going to happen. Nobody does. But at some point, mead's going to become a household name. And then that's going to rise everybody up because everyone's going to know what it is. You know, If you guys are traveling to Los Angeles, you're going to go to a brewery, right? 100%. You're, you're on, we're doing this podcast. You're going to go there. You just have to, you're going to figure out whichever one it is. You're like, cool, I'm going to go to the brewery or Bottle Logic or, or Monkish or whatever. You're going to go check it out and drink beer. If you knew what you guys know what mead is, so you're going to go to a meadery. But imagine if mead was a household name in Australia and someone's a fan, they go to all, you know, Los Angeles, they're going to go look for a meadery because that's what we do. We're craft beer, mead, wine, tourists. And until that happens, you know, who knows? But so anyways, that's like, I think the next thing that has to happen in the mead world is either a big company is going to make their own or someone's going to get bought and they're going to get access to distribution and, and mead will be in every store in so many markets and the advertising dollars that'll go with that with television and print and social media are going to elevate mead beyond any level that we ever could do. The cool thing about social media is it kind of is in certain respects, a level playing field, right? You and I and someone down the street, we can all have an idea and start a company and we can you know, kind of spend the same amount of time. And if we're really creative and, and can write well and take good photos, we can get a, a good following on social media and spend time engaging. Obviously, if you have a million dollars to promote that post, that's a different story. But somebody's got to have that one day and it's going to reach so many people. So we work so hard at trying to get the word out, but there's really only so much you can do on our budget, right? And so I think that when that happens in America, it's going to happen somewhere else and it's going to happen in Australia and it's going to take people starting meteries and doing the same thing that we did and everyone in America is doing. And it's going to farmer's markets and going to wine fest and beer fest and talking to people. You know, 
I still do that. I'm going to Copenhagen in, in eight weeks to talk about what I pour to some of the coolest craft beer fans in the world, like one-on-one for 10 hours a day for two days. Hopefully awesome. I'll have a volunteer for a little bit of that so I can take a nap. But you know what <laughs> I mean? I'm still doing it. I'm doing it right now talking to you guys. Yeah. And one day there's going to be millions and millions of dollars behind this when it comes to promoting what meat is. And then everyone's going to know what it is. And well, oh, man, I wish I had done that. Wow. That's, that's such a exciting um, idea to think of. Yeah. Mead being a household name. And I, I, I think that's a fantastic, like we want to respect your time. I think it's a great place to, to wrap this up. Um, how can people find you? You've mentioned the YouTube channel. Where else can, can people find you and learn more about Superstition Meadery? Yeah, we're on, if you want to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, you kind of get, you know, some, some cool updates on what we're doing. And again, insight into what it looks like. It's and the products that we're coming out with. That's a lot of fun. Our website has some cool information on it links to some articles about us and videos. So yeah, I'd go there. I, I the YouTube channel is really like my favorite thing lately. Cause you get to, you know, you know, it's not just me talking like this right now. There's so many of our staff from our bartenders and servers, mead makers and labelers and graphic designer talking about what they do and why they love it. And I think that, you know, it goes beyond me too. It kind of transcends that and some videos to get to, you know, some business stuff that is applicable to maybe some other areas you're into. So yeah, check that out. And, um, you know, in Australia, um, we've talked to a couple uh, importer distributors, but nothing's clicked yet. So mm. if you are listening, okay. Jeff at superstitionmeadery.com because I would <laughs> love to Please. be there and, and see you guys and um, do some collabs and it'd be really cool. Wow. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Like I'm just blown away again that you've just been so willing to chat to us and we've learned so much. Thanks so much, Jeff from Superstition Meadery. All the best, mate. Talk soon. My pleasure, guys. It's really nice speaking with you today. Thanks so much for supporting Greedy Bear and listening to this podcast. Next week on Making Ends Meet, we answer all of your questions from throughout the year. And Josh and I go head to head as we bring each of our top secret Christmas meads to the studio and get our wives to vote on their favourite. If you haven't already, make sure you check out our Making Ends Meet Inner Circle Facebook group to discuss all things mead and keep tabs on our project. Thanks so much again for tuning in. I'm Tim Engelbrecht and you've been listening to Making Ends Meet.